Thank you guys all for sitting for that first 60 minutes of episode 1, season 2 of Heritage of the Saints Thursday Night Bible Study. Now we've recapped Life Principles 1-3 through as laid out by Charles Stanley. In the second portion of our episode, we are going to begin our discussion, our examination on deliverance. It is embedded and ingrained all throughout the Bible in different ways, in different people's lives, and in different situations. So, what is deliverance? Deliverance is a tool in the hand of God that is used to bring us to our best in our godly selves. Deliverance changes the course of your life. If the Lord can't get you delivered in an area, he can't deliver you to an area of promotion. Legacy is depending on you, your community, your family members, your co-workers. Even your church congregation are depending on you to arrive at your best self. And God, he's relying on you because he has a will, a plan, and purpose that must needs be accomplished. You are capable and you are the chosen one to get it done. Now, why would you or I need deliverance? Deliverance is necessitated for different reasons. Each instance of deliverance will be different for each individual because we all come from different walks of life, experiences, and struggles. Only God knows how to perfectly craft deliverance for your situation, your needs, and your areas of opportunity. God is able to do it in such a way in which the desired result is that you will not return to what had you wrapped up and bound in the first place. Now, let me just... Go ahead and lay this out here. There are some things that we are being delivered from and delivered through that we did not choose. He either chose us or we were born into it. Nevertheless, God says that all things are possible with him to those that believe. Amen. Now, as we segue into our session, what will deliverance achieve? Deliverance as a tool in the hand of God its methods and strategy are used to change our perspective of God. Where we stand now in the continuum of Christian living, hope, and faith, deliverance is a sign still deal for those that believe. Christ has already completed a finished work on the cross at Mount Calvary, and by faith, through faith, with faith, and now faith, God's going to deliver you to new areas in your life. So let's get started on this work. Okay, so now let's get to it. Over the course of the next 12 weeks, we will deep dive into the subject of deliverance with biblical knowledge, understanding, insight, and revelation. Why is deliverance important? Your deliverance changes the course of your life. If the Lord can't get you delivered in an area, He can't deliver you to an area of promotion. Your legacy is depending on you. Your community, your co-workers, your church congregation are depending on you. And God is relying on you because he has a will, a plan, and purpose that must needs be accomplished. And you are the capable chosen one to get it done. Why would you or I need deliverance? Deliverance is necessitated for different reasons. And it will be different for each individual because we come from different walks of life, experiences, struggles. And only God knows how to perfectly craft deliverance for your situation and needs. God is able to do it in such a way that the desired result is that you do not return to want what, who, the things, behaviors, or choices that got you bound in the first place. There are some bounds that are chosen or some that we are born into, which is the case with the children of Israel, the Hebrews, when they were in Egypt, those kids, those babies didn't choose those, that bondage, but they were born into it. 
nevertheless, God still delivered them. So there are bounds and bondage that we choose or may be born into. The bounds that are sought to be placed on you, okay, can be an attack because you do the right thing. And so we're going to move now into scripture, into 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Because I want to focus on Hezekiah and his reign. Now, Hezekiah is a king who ascended to the throne when the kingdom of Israel had now split into two. We have the, 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 kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, which reigns over 10 of the tribes. And then we have the kingdom of Judah, which is Judah and Benjamin. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 18, I'm just going to kind of skip over it a little bit so we get the gist of um, knowledge about Hezekiah. It says, and I'm reading for the Amplified, now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahab, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. I want us to take note here because they're mentioning his descent or genealogy based on his mother. Whereas in the majority of scripture, they tend to um, preference your identity and what family you descend from based on the father. So in the third verse, it says that he did what was right in the sight of, of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Now, I surmise that the reason why Abby is mentioned here is because um, at that time, in such a patriarchal society, um, women, were, women were the teachers and the nurturers of the home. And so it would be a mother's responsibility to train up a child in the way in which she should go. And when they are old, they will not depart. So the mother would have been instrumental in um, teaching the word of the Lord in the home for her young children. And as we know, um, though we might stray the path a little bit, um, you'll return home to God. And so I believe the mention of his mother's name, and again, there are so many names that are exactly the same throughout the Bible. Sometimes I can't, I don't really know who's who, but I will go ahead and just do a further little research. And this is the great thing about you know, Bible study and studying God's word is that you won't come to know everything and there's always something new to learn. I would think that the mention of his mother's name, the daughter of Zachariah, um, she may be the daughter of someone who was in the priesthood, part of the Levitical um, family. So I'll do more research on that. And this just goes to show you how there's only one perfect teacher. His name is Jesus and the perfect helper and trainer is the Holy Ghost. But they put my eyes on that because I looked at it earlier and I didn't go back and do more in-depth research on it, but I had the question there and he re-brought back up my question. So even some of your teachers will have questions and there's always more to learn and growth that can be done. 
Now, skipping down, still in chapter 18 to verse 5, it says regarding Hezekiah, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. This is a man of distinction. A distinguished man who is sitting on God's throne. Now, prior to that, prior to this compliment and this esteem of the kind of man that Hezekiah was, it says that he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Hezekiah ascended the throne and started setting the house in order, according to how God would have it done. No idols. Follow the Lord, follow his word, being obedient. And the result of that obedience is God made him a man of esteem a man of honor, a man that God himself says after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. And he prospered wherever he went and the Lord was with him. So obedience and a heart for God earned him the reward, the reward of the Lord being with him and prospering him wherever he went. That means there was no geographical or time zone that could limit Hezekiah's prospering. It was, it was with him everywhere he went. It was in him, on him. Like he carried, this is what he carried with his being. In verse 11, now, now we, we, we've just read how he did, he did things right. He did things according to the word of the Lord. But in verse 11, it says, then the king of Assyria carried Israel away captive to Assyria and put them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of Mede because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And they would neither hear nor do them. Now, this is what happened with the king of Israel. The, the, remember, the kingdoms have been separated. And with the kingdoms now separated, the Assyrian king, you know, divide and conquer. They had allowed their themselves to um, no longer do the things of God, hear and obey him. And the result of that disobedience first divide the kingdom. But again, with God's disobedience, he allows punishment discipline he will not spare his children from punishment he will not and so at this point the kingdoms have split israel has 10 of the tribes and judah has the other two benjamin and judah the syrian now let me just give you um backstory when the kingdom is united when they are as one, all the enemy territories were fearful of them. 
though the Israelites were smaller in stature, not as tall, they weren't giants like the Philistines or the Amalekites, because God was with them, they, they were a threat to everyone surrounding them. And God could do, God could do big things with a little thing. So it's it's not about the size of you. It's about the size of your God. Now, because God doesn't stand for such, um, let's see, disrespect. He pulled his hand away from having his hand on, on that kingdom, the, the split kingdom. So because Israel was doing the most sinning in their idolatry and following after the um, customs of the people that he removed from the land and dispossessed their lands from them to give to them, the level of the disrespect made him pull back his hand. And so as a result of the punishment, which furthermore, God um, announced, he, he announced their captivity by the mouth of their prophets. And now this is the portion of the Bible in which we see that announcement now coming to pass. Assyria has come in with the divide and conquer mentality, and now they've captured Israel and then carried the people away to um Medes, Halot, and Habor, and then Gozan. And see, knowing this portion of the Bible is imperative because then we get a sense of where Esther is when Esther is now um, going through her process of purification, maintaining her faith, and then becoming a queen who would deliver her people. There are multiple instances of deliverance in the Bible, but I just want to help us work these pieces together by understanding the time and the climate of each of these stories, these histories, these um, testimonies, this living word, because whether or not we believe it, um, we see the same things happening still in our world. We just have to learn how to extract it, talk to God, and have him show us how it applies. Now, in verse 19, we already have Israel carried off into captivity because of their disobedience against God and God allowing the captivity, even announcing it before it happens, now we have the threat against Judah. Remember, Hezekiah is king over Judah. And the threat of, uh, the threat of captivity against Judah is coming through the mouth of Rabshiki, who is um he's like the sent messenger and someone a part of the Assyrian king's uh command and Rafshiki has now been sent to say to the king of Judah he's he's pretty much been to deliver a message now this is the enemy territory Verse 19, then the Rashiki said to them, say now to Hezekiah, because they have just captured Israel, so they fill in themselves. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust? that you rebel against me. Talking about rebelling against Assyria. Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed. 
Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This is the message that the enemy delivers to Hezekiah. He further decides to stand and call out with a loud voice in Hebrew. He's, he's bilingual. So not only is he going to speak his language, he speaks the, the captive's language. And you got to be, be attentive to that. The, one of the tactics of the enemy against you, he'll speak your language. Because he sits and he has to listen to you. He has to ride the, the air to even know what's going on with you. So there are some things you just simply do not need to talk about. Rafshiki now stands and calls with a loud voice. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. We're in verse 28 to 29. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, or he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Deal not with anyone who will get you to not trust in the Lord. Verse 36. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him you owe the enemy zero answers you don't owe him an argument you don't owe him a statement let alone a piece of your mind you're too valuable now in chapter 19 verse 5 Hezekiah has sent word and sent by his servants to inquire of Isaiah, the Lord's prophet, what should he do? Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rapshiki returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Limna for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. It was as God said it would be. If we fast forward down to verse 35 now of chapter 19, Second Kings, now is Sennacherib's defeat and death. Verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisrash, his god, 
that his sons, Adramalek and Sharezer, struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Asharadon, his son, reigned in his place. After the enemy does his work, he tries to flee and sneak off. Nevertheless, when Sennacherib sent his word against God, blasphemed God, tried to war against God's people, he lost 185,000 of his kingdom and furthermore was betrayed and killed by his own sons. God knows how to handle people. And in verse 35, it does not say that the people of Judah or Israel lifted a hand in this doing. Benjamin's mind says the Lord. So even in your oppressive um, state, put everything in God's hands, but nevertheless do what he commands. So yes, as we see here in 2 Kings, Chapters 18 and 19, there are some bindings and chains that you did not choose, but instead chose you. Illustrations for the need for deliverance are evidence all throughout our Bible. We have healings of sickness and disease. Um, when we look at leprosy, leprosy made you unclean. Leprosy meant you had to, one, carry a stigma and announce you're unclean when entering into any of the course or into the public. You had to say unclean, unclean, because you um, had the propensity to defile. Um, and it was so um important that you go to the house of the lord but if you were defiled there's like a seven day period for purification and for the priests um and others in the community like becoming unclean and defiled means you get exiled outside of the community for that period of time you're away from work you're away from your family you're outside the camp until those days of cleansing are up. Other evidences for deliverance, rescue from personal enemies. We see that with David throughout the chapters of Samuel. Uh, it's reiterated in Kings and I believe Chronicles. We see deliverance and rescue from personal enemies, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Esther with the Israelites and Haman's plot for purification. There's rescue from physical danger. Uh, we see that with Peter walking on the water when Jesus told him come, as well as with Paul um, and his shipwrecks. Paul went shipwrecked just once, and it wasn't what's the name of that movie we're talking about shipwreck on waves not these little baby waves we get at the shore of the beach we're talking about the waves that of the deep sea those waves that can sweep a boat under paul was really shipwrecked and it's one thing to be a sailor on a boat and get shipwrecked it's a whole nother thing to be in captivity in chains and be shipwrecked because everyone else is spending for themselves. The last person they care about be the prisoner. But nevertheless, with Paul being on board and Paul's great measure of faith, Paul was giving them instructions and then nevertheless telling them, okay, Nevertheless, the cargo will be lost, but it won't be any loss of lives. So he rescues you from physical danger as well. God will rescue us from political oppression. Um, 
for the Hebrews, the political oppression was in Egypt. They were being treated harshly and beaten. And this is why he rose up the deliverer Moses. We see deliverance again um, with David and Goliath. Israel is being delivered from the Philistines in the Valley of Elah, where they fought every year. So every year they would go meet in the Valley of Elah to fight over the grain, which is bread. They were fighting over food. And, you know, it's, it's, it's no surprise I got put this right here with this next statement that I'm about to make, because With Ukraine and Russia, Russia's stealing the bread. So as I said before, the Bible is a roadmap and a compass, an instruction manual for us while we are here on earth. It will um, make histories. Um, it, 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 the things that we, we per perceive as histories, um, repeat themselves um there's nothing new under the sun and so we are just seeing a repeat of the perceived little people fighting against the giants we are seeing ukraine fight against russia and russia is stealing their bread furthermore if i'm not mistaken um what overshadowed uh a seemingly other situation because we've been so engulfed with what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. I believe the U.S. invaded Somalia and we just didn't hear about it at the same time. So um, I encourage you um, not to let the news consume you, but uh, there are certain world subjects that we need to stay abreast on. Now, most importantly, when we are talking about deliverance um, and deliverance and salvation are used interchangeably because salvation is the package that provides everything that we need. We also have rescue from sin. Our instances in the Bible, just a few, are the woman caught in the act of adultery because what Jesus says is let um, he who was without sin cast the first stone and no one stoned her as would have been the customary punishment for an act of adultery. But just to shed a little bit of light, they focused on the woman, but what about the man? Because it takes two. And how'd y'all even know where they were and what they were doing? unless it was a plan, plot, or scheme. And this is what Jesus's issue was, was that you guys are busy trying to get me to say something that I've already told you, I am the Lord, I am God, I am the Messiah. You're not gonna change my position off of that. But Jesus wasn't going to continue to um, argue with people who were convinced and, and, They were, they were convinced and they were committed to misunderstanding and misperceiving him. Nevertheless, um, following the woman's uh, release from her captors, because again, the captors aren't necessarily, there's a master and there are slaves. For her, her captors were members of her community. And upon her release, based on the wisdom and the, the, the mercy that God is showing them right there in that moment, he tells her, go and sin no more. Another instance of a rescue from sin is Zacchaeus, the little tax collector who was up in the tree looking to see Jesus. We always remember his story as 
um, him being the one chosen uh, as a person whose home Jesus will suck with tonight. But Zacchaeus, in the context of that time, he was a very rich man. Um, tax collectors typically were also extortionists. And so the Pharisees, of course, is vehemently like, oh my goodness, he can't be the Messiah going to that house. Nevertheless, Zacchaeus, a very rich man, though it's not stated in the scripture, I believe he may have been based on his action because he gave away a lot following his encounter and being able to have that time with God, I believe Zacchaeus escaped the sin to which the rich man who walked over the beggar Lazarus suffered, where he was in hell burning and begging for someone to dip their finger and cool his I can't remember if it's cool his tongue or his heart, but he was asking it to be cool. But this man had allowed um, riches and wealth to be his God. He had allowed the sin of greed to take over him. Selfishness, pride, and arrogance. What if Zacchaeus did not have that encounter with Jesus? Zacchaeus had an encounter which changed the trajectory of his life from that encounter. So whatever's trying to keep you wrapped up so that you would be convinced that God cannot do a good thing with you, this session, that's over. There isn't anything too hard for the Lord. Absolutely nothing. So what does deliverance achieve? Deliverance is the method and strategy God uses to change your perspective of him. Where we stand now in the continuum of Christian living, hope and faith, deliverance is a signed and sealed deal for those that believe. Christ completed a finished work on the cross at Mount Calvary. He said, Tadalestai, it is finished. So your deliverance will come by faith, through faith, with faith, and even now faith. Spend some time in Hebrews 11 because in order for us to have deliverance by faith, through faith, with faith, and now faith, it required God coming to earth, shedding his blood, and dying on the cross. Through his death, burial, resurrection, descension, and ascension, he is seated at the right hand of God and is able to deliver us out of every situation and circumstance. Isaiah 53 prophesies everything that salvation, um, that's wrapped in the gift of salvation. Starting in verse three, it says he was despised and rejected and forsaken by men a man of sorrows and pains and acquainted with grief and sickness. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. Surely he has borne our griefs, sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses and carried our sorrows and pains of punishment. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities, the chastisement, the needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has made to light upon him the guilt and iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he was submissive and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and as for his generation among them, considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken to his death, for the transgression of my, Isaiah's people, 
which are the Israelites, which are the people of God, to whom the stroke was due. They assigned him a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Going down to verse 12, because he poured out his life onto death, and he let himself be regarded as a criminal and be numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore and took away the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors of rebellion. From what I can gather and recall um, for the purpose of this study, every instance of deliverance showcases God's motives his faithfulness to his promises, his love for his people, and the gift of grace and mercy. You are worth the cost of his blood. Christ paid to redeem you and free you. You are worth every penny of it. So deliverance is a method to transition you from positions of depression suppression, oppression, and possession to the position of power, dominion, rule, and reign. So why, why did we spend our time in Genesis? So we could see where we were positioned, what we lost, and what we are being restored to. Any and everything that seeks to hold you from tapping into your potential your God-ordained birthright and identity as a child of God, you must be delivered from. It is the being brought from, a, from or through a difficulty, suffering, torment, trial, challenge, which seeks to establish in you and with you a new perspective of God. It can be negative thoughts and emotions, a sickness, a limitation, wrong thinking, uh, ill perception of God, bad relationships, temporal, carnal lusts and pleasures of the world, broke and brokenness, mental instability, addictions, even the minute bad habits which we have. If left unattended, these things can derail your destiny or detain you. There are people free in the world, but imprisoned in their minds, imprisoned in the past, imprisoned by a sickness, imprisoned by an invisible captor because of the demonic strongholds, the kingdom of darkness has tricked you into allowing to be implanted in your mind. So when God talks about establishing you or, in this, or establishing in you, he's talking about a permanent condition. We have him establishing the works in 2 Thessalonians 2, 17, establishing your lives, 1 Peter 5, 10, and establishing his word in Psalm 119, 38. Deliverance is an affirmation of God's power, dunamis, and exousia. We'll get more into that as we proceed in our future lessons. Deliverance is an affirmation of God's care as a shepherd. It serves also as a pattern for human faith. The journey of deliverance in Exodus was not easy for Moses and the Israelites. Some wanted to turn back, perceiving that what they left was better than what they were struggling through to get to, which was the promised land of rest. Um, for us now, we have the believer's rest. Deliverance um, is an affirmation both to the captive and the captor and serves as a reminder and warning against disobedience to God. 
God will let you get away from the trouble, the people, and even the death if you heed his word. And we have the Bible, which is our instructional manual. And so when I say that, it's a reminder and a warning. It cuts both ways, both for the captive and the captor. That um, disobedience to God, number one, when you're the captive in some situations, not all, um, it's a reminder to you that you've fallen into this snare, trap, or punishment because of disobedience. But it's also a reminder and a warning to um, the captive who's operating uh, disobedience that um, God takes care of his people, God will rescue his people, and God will always handle their enemies. God understands. Oh, he he God understands what um the experience is for us because he became fashioned in the form of man. He understands that people need rest, um, rest in the sense that the body actually needs sleep and needs to cease from all voluntary work from our job. He understands that um, we need rest from war and that war could be internal or external because there are people who are really warring at war with themselves. Um, and that's an internal sh struggle. Um, God understands that we need to be delivered or need rest from uh, fatigue, being overworked, depression, anxiety, and the storms of life. What you will come to learn regarding true rest, which can only come through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it can only come through trusting in God, resting in God, and ex experiencing his presence. Now, there are, we'll continuously touch on these items as we go on. I just kind of want to lay out the scene of what we'll be traveling through and things that we will notate. What can delay or prolong or keep us from deliverance? With the work of Christ on the cross completed, the only thing that can keep you from deliverance is unrepentance. For the unbeliever, it delivers you from the kingdom of darkness, evil, wickedness, and sin, and into the kingdom of light, when you repent, you receive forgiveness and redemption. Because of the curse of the law, the curse which is the natural consequence for disobedience to God, is death, is separation from God. Um, and we're, we're not talking about death in the sense of ceasing to live. It's death in the sense of you live and have zero relationship, presence, uh, or contact with God. That's death. That is spiritual death. There's spiritual death and there's physical death. But what we, we all know is that the one that um, holds the way is your spiritual death or life. The spiritual dead cannot reside with God because he is a God of living spirits. And in order to have life, you must have Jesus. No contesting that. Through the confession of faith, we have restoration of relationship with God. You are no longer enemies of him. You have crossed over the line in the sand and you stand with God. And if you are with God, who can be against you? Nothing can hold you unless you allow it to. And I know this because we are created, back to Genesis, in the image and likeness of God. So if the grave couldn't hold Jesus like him, neither can a snare trap situation or circumstance hold you. You will come up out of it and at the assistance and timing of God. So what is deliverance? Deliverance is a tool in God's hand. Deliverance is a tool to assist in your transformation process through sanctification. It is to be worked out. 
And I would love for you guys to know, say Philippians 2.12. Remember, Jesus delivers you from the penalty of sin, which is death. And death is both temporal and eternal. And the temporal, again, is separation from God. We're on the other side of enemy lines. And in the internal, it's, it's hell. So there are requirements for um, deliverance by the hand of God. It requires confession. It requires repentance, faith, regeneration, and holy scripture. The sanctification, because salvation delivers us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification delivers us through the habits of sin while we are um, here on this earth. Um, it's, sanctification will deliver us um, from sin nature, thoughts, actions, behaviors, and conduct, bringing forth through that time with God, his word, and letting it do its work. We bring forth the new character and conduct, um, evidence of the internal work done. And as Pastor Keon says, hard work is hard work. The fruit is the end product of a root and no good tree bears bad fruit and no bad tree bears good fruit. The fruit is a result of the root. So what are the fruits of deliverance? Submission, you learn to examine your thoughts because your body is subject to the mind. Um, you must obey God for deliverance that you partake in. And we see this with the Hebrews and sons of Israel during the Exodus. Uh, we also see this with David when he's inquiring of God when to return to Saul's palace or to a certain area or when and where to send his family because at this time Saul was chasing him. Through obedience, submission, worked with deliverance, deliverance will teach you patience. You are taught to wait on the Lord and learn God's timing is perfect. Deliverance is in God's timing and not ours. There is no trainer of patience like deliverance. You learn to be patient in uncomfortable difficult circumstances, but you're able to endure it when you're anchored in the word. David profited from enduring trials and persecutions, but also received spiritual refreshment, which is critical when you're in a hard place. Testing. Testing in your life points to an area God is working to bring you deliverance. So if you've been praying, Lord, help me with my patience, he sends you people to try your patience because it's a practice. And practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes progress. It's a practice. The battle is over your mind. We have free moral agency and we have the options and the choosing to subscribe to the world's substandard acceptance of mediocrity and things that don't seem too bad. But God's word has to set the standard in your life. And you'll need the Holy Spirit's aid and help in accomplishing um, obedience, submission, which will incrementally increase and the load will increase to continue to build your obedience. Also helping you will be your pastoral relationships and fellowships. Deliverance will also train you to evaluate yourself. Once you start accomplishing obedience at a certain level, you'll start um, evaluating what you're thinking or where that thought came from. You'll evaluate even... Um, 
the standard to which you do things. I believe that um, you do things with a more consistent effort of doing your best through this communion that we have. You'll also develop more attentiveness and a heightened awareness for discerning things, attempting to seduce you to go astray from God's word, ways, and will. Um, it will help increase your wisdom and understanding of God's purposes and plans. And, you know, sometimes though we do not like it, and though we feel like the circumstance is so hard, sometimes he has to take you the long way. Job said it best when he said, um, though he slay me, yet will I trust in the Lord. And on the other side of that, when we get to Job, I believe it's 42, which is the last chapter, we see the rewards of Job's obedience Job's faithfulness and Job's willingness to just endure. Knock it out of the oven. He got double for his trouble. Deliverance has a way, um, what's crafted into deliverance, it has a way of focusing your sight on God because the waves of the sea um, of difficulty could oversweep you if you break sight line and that's Peter on the water and we'll go there a little bit as well if you fixate on Jesus the pattern he has left as a blueprint for building your arc of testimony the culmination of your life like Noah you will save you and your family with Jesus in the mix you don't just get the door you get the door open and the go in as well deliverance will definitely build your prayer life <laughs> trust me i'm i'm i will attest to that the, when you're in uh the process because it is a process i just deliverance isn't just a wham bam thank you ma'am like you don't get there that quick deliverance can have very time frames and i really 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 want to land that because I thought my deliverance was going to come in two days and I'm still in process I am still in process of my deliverance but nevertheless I'm trying to see what it is that I need to learn what areas are we growing here um and one of my areas I'm actually growing in is um saying how I really feel with constructive words, not just saying, oh, it's okay, everything's all right. No, if it hurt my feelings, I, I'm entitled to be able to tell someone in a respectful, constructive, loving manner, like, no, nah, that hurt my feelings, and I don't like it when you're doing this. Another part of it is um, me dealing with what I think people think of me which may not even be what they think of me because I haven't even had that conversation with them. And so I'm running on an assumption. Also, the fact that I kind of sometimes don't care, but when I do care, acting like I don't care is a problem because people think you don't care. And so they're just like, well, you don't care anyway. So, so there's a lot of things that I'm still working on as a person to be delivered from. Um, because I'm not perfect, but I also want to be my most authentic and genuine self. And I want to be walking in the fullness of what God has for me. And so um, I think right now, mainly what I'm dealing with is my own emotional accountability and not trying to say things don't hurt me when they do. Because he knows it. I'm taking it to him and I'm crying to him about it, but then I don't want to have the conversation with people. So we're all works in progress. Again, deliverance is a process. Um, and you'll be thankful for it. Um, e even with the um, levels of 
growth that you reach. Let's see. And again, that was really realistically like one of the last statements is that deliverance is a process and grace is needed because, you know, this process of deliverance and sanctification, submitting to God, surrendering and having the subscription to the mind of Christ. Um, these are all components of the undoing and the unlearning, which takes time and it takes willingness. That is very much imperative that you be willing. God is the good shepherd and decidedly unchangingly rules over us with everlasting love, care, kindness, forgiveness, and compassion because that's what a shepherd does. Deliverance is ultimately about your true identity and bringing you to it. As Genesis 1, 26 through 29 lays out the original purpose, position, and parameters of man and woman when Adam and Eve were created in the garden. Though it's not written there, we do find it in John 10, 34 and Psalm 82, what their position, their purpose, and parameters were. He gave them dominion to reign, to rule. He gave them um um, um, power to subdue the earth and, and subjugate things under them. What God was saying is just this. It is clear that when God gave the command to Adam and Eve, uh, and they lost the position, purpose, and parameters originally given them, through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we get restored back into our rightful positions, our birthright. And it's clear to me that we are little gods, little G's. As Jesus answered them in John 10, 34, he says, is it not written in your law? I said that you are God's. And then David eight in Psalm 82, six further stipulates, and all of you are children of the most high. Deliverance is about drying, uh, trying us like gold in the fire. It's about burning off the dross. It's about um, decluttering us, filling us with his love, his faith, his grace, and delivering us back to our positions of purpose, positions of power, the position to have dominion, and have the parameters that he shaped man within the garden. So, um, we're going, we're actually done for this evening, but I do want to close this out in prayer. Father, in the name of the Son, Jesus, we thank you that we are able to come before you in your presence and gather here and here with us as the Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for sitting on our meeting, leading and guiding us through scripture and what you would have the people on the line here know and understand. Work into their minds, more understanding of your word, your mercy, your love, your compassion. Let their ears be open to hear and eyes be open to see the magnificence and the glory of our loving God. Let their hearts be tilled like good soil to receive the seed of your word, O oh Father. Water it, bring forth this harvest in due season. Thank you that you are no respecter of man, but you respect faith. You respect our belief on the one who you sent to save us. So we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our redeemer, the sacrificial lamb of God, the God of our salvation. Thank you for such loving care, tender mercy, kindness, and long suffering, because it does take some of us a while to come around. But Lord, I pray that all here 
the love in my voice and my love for you because I know that you love them. You would, will not withhold your love and your open arms for anyone who turns and seeks to come to you. Strengthen them in their inner man, O oh Lord. Build up gates around their minds. Let them feel encouraged and courageous to face life daily because they now know through repentance and the confession of faith, they are no longer on the other side of enemy lines, but that they stand with God and you stand with them. Thank you for being the God who will assist us, help us, and fight our battles. Thank you for being the God that never sleeps nor slumbers. And so you're always available to hear our petitions, our supplications, our requests, and our thanksgiving. Now on to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. To him whose magnificence, grandeur, and glory adorns the throne of heaven. It is in Jesus's mighty, matchless, marvelous, majestic name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good night.